Social Anxiety and Inhibition. It's actually a talk I've been looking forward to giving. I love the sort of, uh, I love the dark, difficult topic. Talking about fear, misery, depression, anxiety, inhibition. It's also great for a Dharma teacher. Um, so, uh, I'm just going to start out. Um, human beings have different needs, groups of needs that need to be met for us and need to be met. Needs that we, uh, uh, oh, I can't figure out a way to put this sentence without using the word need again. All right, we have needs that need to be met. Oh, that's <laughs> awful. That's just awful. That's tragedy. We have needs that seek fulfillment. <laughs> uh, I should have worked on that one more. All right, so we have uh, we have needs. The, the most basic is, of course, physical survival, um, and the the brainstem, autonomic nervous system, the basic core emotions of fear and anger uh, are tied up to this core set of needs which basically make us fight, flight, or freeze given any kind of threat. So basically it's the mind that's set to look at the world in terms of threats and keep us alive. And those are the most, in terms of their access to neurotransmitters and to the way the, to the, the heavy lifting of the brain, they're the most powerful of the three groups of needs. The second uh, group of needs is attaining advantages towards our survival. And this is quite different. Uh, unlike keeping yourself alive, you also have needs to acquire food, shelter that's secure, uh, clothing for when it's cold, uh, medicine. The Buddha called these the requisites. And we have uh, a slightly higher brain called the midbrain with what's known as the limbic system that's set up to reward you every time you acquire these advantages that help make life go easier for you. And if the basic needs of survival have uh, core emotions like fear and anger associated with them, the second group of needs which are getting advantages, they have very often positive emotions attached to reward you for attaining feelings of elation, happiness, joy, um, uh, achievement. Uh, those are what floods the brain with the release of dopamine every time you get something that makes your survival seem a little bit like it'll go easier. So the third set of needs is for what's called attachment. Uh, it wasn't until the work of the great John Bowlby in the 1940s and 50s that people even knew that infants had a core instinctual need to attach, not just to get food, not just to get security, but we also have a need to connect with other people because we are human beings and human beings are pack animals and the way as a species 
we got our great advantage. The thing that we're programmed to do from literally in the first days of life is to seek visual connection first, touch, connection, connection through uh, sounds, connection through proximity. And why do we need these, why do we have such a strong instinctual uh, requirement, instinct for attachment? Well, it's through attachment that human beings learn, one, to become safer. Human beings don't, we don't run fast. Uh, we, many of the, our, in the wild, our predators would be able to outrun us. We don't climb trees particularly well. None of us are good at digging holes and jumping into them. Uh, but what we do have is we can bond securely into groups, clans, and communicate and look out for each other's backs. And so finding people that you feel safe with and bonding with them so that you won't have to always be on guard and in defense and constantly feeling threatened is uh, a core human need. And we have a lot of systems in the frontal lobes of the brain that allow us to read people, to note emotionally if they seem attuned and safe to us. And we also need connection because that's how, as children, we make sense of emotions. At first, emotions, uh, which are activations trying to get us to do something, Emotions are just body energy, muscle contraction, blood flow. Um, we don't know what they are until a caretaker, a parent, says, oh, you're frightened, oh, you're scared, oh, you're upset, oh, you're anxious, you're worried, you're this. So we seek out other people to help us understand and moderate our emotions. Without other people, we very quickly lose our shit. This is why um, solitary confinement, which unfortunately the U.S. government uses uh, quite frequently on prisoners, uh, but solitary confinement leads to disastrous emotional effects because if you do not have access to other people to help you regulate your emotions, Eventually what happens is your emotional states go haywire. You cannot regulate them completely on your own. So, um, in the first three years of life, we try to get these needs that we've talked about met by emotionally connecting with our caretakers. So, a child knows how to signal to its parents when it's hungry for food, when it's frightened for security. But what about that third set of needs when it needs just emotional connection, soothing, just uh, uh, an ability to exchange glances and have the parent mirror its emotional state? And Well, children have a number of ways of signaling that need. They will often raise their hands up like this, trying to get the parent to lift them up or they will lock in the parent's gaze and they'll try to uh, establish a link. Now, if you 
are lucky enough to have terrific caretakers who can read not just your needs for food and shelter and security, but also know when you need just emotional bonding, what will happen is they'll predictably see, they'll know when to mirror your emotions, they'll be tolerant when you're upset and frightened, they won't immediately uh, reject or abandon certain emotions, they'll be present. And so they don't have to do this all the time, by, by no means, but just predictably enough. And those children grow up to be reliably confident, they're capable of exploring the world, they generally tend to uh, find it easy to navigate romantic relationships without too much stress or uh, drama. But what happens if a child uh, is signaling to its caretakers constantly for some attachment, just, hey, I need to be, <laughs> this is the child saying, I need to be regulated. I need to be, I need to establish secure connection with you for emotion regulation, if only a child could say that. Uh, and the parent doesn't read it. Well, then what happens is whichever emotions the parents do not feel, don't feel compelled to connect with. For instance, when the child's frustrated or sad or if the child is um, irritable, there's all different kinds of emotions that are not particularly pleasant for parents. And some parents are good at developing emotional tolerance, but some aren't. And very quickly, they'll inform the child that they're less than going to be less than tolerant or connected when the child is in a specific emotional state that they don't like. They'll connect with the child when the child's happy, elated, uh, flirtatious, precocious, engaged, but what happens if the child is just irritable and, and stomping its feet and demanding? Very often the parents will say something along the lines of, uh, well, if that's the way you're going to be, and they'll just pull away. And so this creates what's known as a dreaded experience. I love psychological terms. And dreaded experience is such a dry way for saying for children, holy shit, my parents just abandoned me. A dreaded experience is any emotional feeling of, of being dropped not wanted, abandoned, not seen. And as a child, we're completely dependent on our caretakers. That's how we survive. So if you, as an infant, even from a very early age, you begin to associate certain emotional states, for instance, sadness or anger, with abandonment, with the dreaded experience. These are the emotions that my parents don't tolerate or B, when they do give me attention, it's negative. They become stressed, they don't lock eyes, they don't become pliant, they don't touch very gently, they become somewhat uh, stiff and uh, remote. The child picks this up, and very quickly it develops a series of um, associations. These emotions are wanted, by the world around me, my parents, my caretakers, the positive emotions. 
And these emotions lead to abandonment and dreaded experiences, and I'm going to start to uh, develop the skills of inhibition, pushing them down by learning how to change the emotional state or to not ask for connection when I feel a certain way, to hide, to not seek love in a certain emotional condition. Then as we grow older, we're no longer just in interactions with our caretakers, but we're in socialized settings of schoolyards. We're about five or six in kindergarten, first grade. Children begin a second way of learning which emotions are wanted by the world and which emotions and situations are dangerous. And this is called observational learning. A child will watch other children and observe which behaviors and emotions are rewarded and which behaviors and emotions lead to shaming, ridicule, and schoolyard rejection. I grew up in well, I wouldn't say extremely homophobic times, but they certainly were fairly homophobic in the 1970s in uh, uh, lower middle class, way upper Manhattan. Um, it was not a particularly welcome place where young boys would uh, reveal feminine characteristics and be rewarded for it. So that's an environment where you would learn very quickly to begin to conceal very authentic behaviors and impulses because you'd see that it would lead to disastrous results. And likewise, young girls learn which behaviors were rewarded by their peers and which behaviors lead to shaming, rejection, abandonment. I think you get what I'm referring to. So by the time we wind up, as young adults, we've developed a vocabulary or a set of a working model in the mind of which emotions are safe, which impulses are safe, which situations in life are safe, and which situations, which emotions, which impulses very often lead to rejection, abandonment, shaming, ridicule. So, how does this play out? Well, we have, as human beings, again, this need to connect with others. But very often, when we feel this need to connect, the emotional state or the situation that we're in or the impulse will feel dangerous because earlier in life, when we've had that impulse to connect when we're sad, or when we're angry, or when we feel lonely, or when we feel vulnerable. Those very same situations earlier in life led to disastrous interactions with our peers or even earlier with our caretakers. So, if there's no negative association when we have an impulse, we'll probably act out on it. But if there is a negative association from the past, the third part of the cycle is what's known as inhibition. So if you have a negative association where you have an impulse, for instance, you're at, you've gone to a new line of work. 
and you're in the first day, and everybody's strange, and first, your brain is in what's known as vigilant mode, because you're checking out to see if you're safe. But then, suppose the last, or suppose previous times in life where you were amongst complete strangers in a schoolyard 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, when you were new, the new the new kid at school, you experienced a lot of hazing, shaming, ostracization. You felt punished by the other kids. This experience in adult life of being the new kid on the block will trigger a fear response. And instead of just being vigilant, you'll go into what's known as hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is when we don't shut off vigilance and we keep scanning other people and environments for threats. Now, we all need vigilance. If you are introduced to somebody new in your life, a normal human being will vigilantly first scan them to see if they seem friendly and safe. This is millions of years of survival programming. You can't do it. Undo it. But if something triggers you to feel unsafe, if the situation reminds you of a previous situation where you were emotionally punished, if you are in an emotional state that triggers an, a fear setting, then you won't leave vigilance. You'll stay in what's known as hypervigilance. You'll continue to scan and look for threats long after the mind should know to shut down that, that setting. Now, what's the problem with hypervigilance? Well, it's a disaster for the brain to be in pretty long. It uses up all the dopamine, the adrenaline, cortisol. It keeps you completely caught up in trying to read other people's expressions and figure out what they're thinking. And it completely drains you of any ability to be authentic, spontaneous, funny, charming, your normal wonderful selves. Another thing it'll do is it'll contract your stomach it will make your blood start pumping harder. Your breath will start beating rap. You know, being uh, you'll breathe rapidly, especially the out breath. Uh, Self-conscious thoughts will often arise. That's another besides hypervigilance, trying to read other people's expressions and trying to figure out if people like us again and again and again and monitoring them will also have self-conscious narration. Why am I doing this? Why aren't I funnier? Why am I staring? Why am I standing this way? Why am I looking this way? Why am I sweating? Why am I... And of course, if you're in both hypervigilance and self-conscious narration, you've completely lost any ability to make a secure connection with anybody. Because when we're in that state, we look insane. <laughs> We either look insane or we look very frightened. We, we're very frightened in that. There's nothing more mean-looking than people who are frightened. The facial gestures and the look. When you, if you've ever seen somebody who's terrified, they look fucking frightening. So when we're act, in an activated state where we uh, are in, inhibiting the impulse to connect because we're activated with fear, we're really, really consumed. And then we inhibit the impulse generally by uh, looking for a distraction, shutting down, uh, uh, withdrawing, retreating, 
giving up all sorts of maneuvers we have to get ourselves out of a situation where we can make a new connection. So, for instance, you come to Dharma Punks. I don't know why you do that. Weird-looking teacher and all these strange people sitting around meditating, but you have. You've come to Dharma Punks and you might not know other people, and you might see somebody there who looks pretty cool. You're like, oh, that person looks pretty interesting. But maybe the last time you were in a new setting and you tried to reach out and introduce yourself or at some point in your life when you've done that in the past or you felt a little isolated and you didn't know people, you've associated that emotional state and that circumstance with rejection. So suddenly the urge to say to the person sitting next to you, hey, I'm new here, my name is blah, blah, blah. Suddenly that impulse to connect is met with, oh, and then they probably know what they're doing and they know everybody and they probably will think I'm irritating and, and I don't know why I, I need to pick most people they don't need to introduce themselves I don't even know why I'd have that thought so we become filled with hypervigilance and self-consciousness and then we quash the thought and then we don't reach out and connect and of course every time you put the need to connect in competition with fear fear will win every time because fear is a base core uh, survival need. Attachment in the survival schemes always comes second. That's, this is why when we're in an activated state, when friends try to cheer us up and, and be our cheerleaders, I say, oh, you'll do fine. I know you have to give a speech, and the last time you gave a speech it was a disaster, but you'll be fine. You'll just get up there. You'll be charming. And you go up there... Because reason, cognitive thought, is in the forebrain. Fear is in the brainstem. And guess which one gets to control all of your autonomic nervous system, your bowels, your stomach, your breath, your sweat glands, your attention? Yeah. It's the fear mechanism. So trying to talk somebody into being calm when they have social anxiety won't work. You're going up against all of, all of human history. All of human history is like, last time I was in this situation, I felt like I wasn't going to survive. I don't want to do anything. I just want to shut down and crawl away. Maybe they won't notice. And just the frontal lobe is like, but maybe we could say hello. Nah, fuck this. <laughs> fuck this, chips. This ain't happening. No fucking way. You start sweating. You know, you can get all kinds of, you know, symptoms. So, um, where was it? So, um, we develop compensatory strategies often to help us with social inhibition and anxiety. When we start to feel activated, many of us will run to alcohol because alcohol shuts down the part of the brain, the orbital frontal region, which, uh, and also other areas of the brain that create self-consciousness. So it's basically a uh, band-aid because while some of the body is activated, we're basically numbing just one, you know, we're trying to numb the self-conscious part and then 
Alcohol, unfortunately, it numbs also your motor coordination, speech, your ability to predict long-term outcomes for your actions. And, you know, in other words, you wind up sleeping with the wrong person waking up. Like, what the fuck did I do? Where am I? Holy shit, my head hurts. All in the name of getting a little relief from social inhibition. It's not, uh, you know, if alcohol came with the warning labels that drugs came with, it would go on forever. It really would. You know, the first page and a half would be what it does to your liver. And then it would say, basically, this will work for a short period of time, then you'll need more and more and more and more, and the results will be shorter and shorter and shorter, so you'll need to consume more and more and more, and eventually you'll be taking actions that you regret. Would you take any medication that said that? I'm not saying that, you know, alcohol is bad for some people. I'm simply saying that in, as a use for overcoming social inhibition, it will not be a, a reliable tool. Um, likewise, instead of sometimes some people don't use alcohol, which is a uh, which basically deactivates parts of the brain, and instead they go a different route, which is called cocaine. <laughs> and cocaine is a dopamine releaser that makes everything you say sound so great. <laughs> Holy shit! Did you see? What? Uh, Breaking Bad's last season was the greatest thing ever. I love Manzel. Oh, you love Manzel. I love Manzel too. We're so great. I love you. I love you too. And the next day, you're like, I don't know why I told that person I love them. All I said was that I love a show that everybody loves. <laughs> but cocaine will make anything sound terrific because it's flooding the brain with dopamine much like speed crystal meth will as well again just like the alcohol strategy you'll habitually quickly and you'll need more and more and the results will be less and less and as a long-term strategy for working with social inhibition and anxiety it doesn't work finally the probably the most popular uh, way that people try to compensate for social inhibition is through attaining power, status, money, fame, recognition. There's a study that shows the more that people attain power, the greater relief at first they feel from their social inhibition before it returns again. <laughs> then they need more and more business deals, more and more money, more and more fame for to get some relief and then the anxiety returns. But like alcohol, it's a short-term relief. It, for a while, when people get a big bonus or get a promotion or achieve some kind of status or approval from others, they feel permission to act out on their impulses without the worry, the attendant worry, and triggering an anxiety that causes inhibition. Of course, that relief is very, very short because the key underlying conditions that have created the fear mechanisms were planted very young in life, as we've seen. And so these compensatory strategies, they tend to 
only be very short-lasting. However, you'll be glad to know that if that's all, if that's all I had, it would be a pretty depressing talk, right? So we're fucked. No. Actually, there are tools and, uh, that have re- are reliably um, useful. Let me go over some of them. Uh, the first is when we're in an activated state, a fear-activated state, when something we, when we have an impulse to connect with other people, to, to uh, interact, but we become uh, anxious, if we try to talk ourselves into being calm, we've already discussed that that won't work because the fear mechanisms are far stronger than the logic. But what we can do is we can bypass the whole logic bit and actually go into the body manually. This is one of the wonderful things about uh, the forebrain is that it actually can override the breath rhythm and we can actually extend the length of the out-breath which actually releases serotonin, stops the release of cortisol and begins to deactivate us. You're basically telling the brainstem Hey, brainstem, you fucking idiot. I'm just at a work party. I'm not out in the fucking jungle anymore surrounded by predators. And the brainstem's like, what? (laughs) They look pretty fucking scary to me. And you're like, well, guess what? I've just overrun... I don't know why I'm like... Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So in my cartoon where you're talking to your brainstem... You're telling your brainstem, well, I've overridden the out-breath, I've made it longer, I've relaxed the stomach. So I'm informing you directly that nothing is going on. And the brainstem will actually follow along. This is why when people have panic attacks, the first lesson has always been to get them to breathe. It's not just because focusing on the breath pulls their awareness away from the thought that's triggering them. That's one reason why it works. But it particularly works because it's overriding the autonomic nervous system and triggering the vagal vagus nerve to tell the brain everything's okay. It's actually an evolutionary trick that we can do to basically deactivate ourselves. People theorize that the reason why human beings have so many Uh, positive emotions, more so than most animals, is because positive emotions are other ways to deactivate you when you're you're activated by fear. Um, A second approach is when we're in hypervigilance, when we're locked in trying to read people's expressions, tones of voice, figuring out again and again if we're about to be rejected, if people are about to judge us, what people are thinking about us, It's important to, the Buddha talked about sensory clarity, which means essentially read the other environmental cues around you to remind the brain, one, that you're safe, and two, that there's more stimuli going on around you than just the facial expressions of the person you're talking to. Now, this requires some skill. If you're constantly looking around while you're talking to somebody, they'll think that you've lost it. The key is to look and then look away, note, oh yes, party people, nobody with guns shooting me yet, you know, 
not about to be eaten. No snakes, wild boars. Okay, back to the person's expression. Literally, hyperventilation will stop the more you override its tendency to lock you in to the facial expression of someone else and try to read their expressions. But you have to manually override. If you don't manually override your attention, the right hemisphere will control it, and you'll stay locked in trying to read what they're thinking. And the more you're in hypervigilance, the more you're trying to read other people's thoughts and expressions, the less you'll be authentic, spontaneous, funny, charming, whatever. Because you're using up the, the part of your brain that reads other people's expressions. It's called the fusiform gyrus. It uses up all of your fucking neural resources. Fusiform gyrus. F-U-S-I-F-O-R-M-G-Y-R-U-S. It's actually the fastest working part of the brain. Because, but because it's the fastest working part of the brain, the part that allows you to read other people's expressions, it's also the part of the brain that uses up the most energy. So if you're in a job all day long where you have to read people's expressions, it's the most mentally exhausting job you can have. Um, the next is incremental exposure. This is what, uh, if you go to cognitive behavioral therapy for social inhibition, this is what they'll tell you to do. But it's actually, it's a trick as old as Buddhist practice. It basically goes like this. Make a hierarchy in your mind of situations where you feel most scared to the ones where you feel the most confident. In the situations where you feel the most confident, practice talking about emotions that you generally don't reveal. So if you feel, for example, confident and comfortable at work with somebody, talk about a difficult emotional state. By doing that, you'll be able to move into more and more risky uh, situations and talk more openly and authentically. Likewise, you can use really safe topics in more challenging circumstances. But don't try to talk about vulnerable, risky emotions in unknown, unsafe circumstances. Because guess what you'll do? You'll activate yourself. So try to know which situations you feel the most confident and move into, if you're at work or with a friend and you don't have the tendency to talk about feelings of isolation or feelings of loneliness, sadness, confusion in life, directionlessness in life, try to move in to those areas because the more comfortable you feel talking about emotionally risky topics, the more you'll be able to do this in increasingly riskier situations, like on a date, for example. Although nobody does this on dates anymore. I talk to, to my young friends who actually date they go out there in the world and they date. Or actually, that's another word for hooking up. Nobody actually dates anymore. They hook up. And there's very little emotional exchange happening. People have this thing, Tinder. I sound like I'm ancient now. They swipe. It's like swiping through a catalog on you know, Amazon. Oh, I don't know about that one. Oh, I don't know about that one. Oh, that one looks good. And then they go, they tell a few jokes. If the person thinks they're funny... They get laid. Thank you for doing business with me. I'll see you later. 
That's my take on modern love. Uh, <laughs> so fucking transactional, I can't believe it. Uh, so self-soothing. Visualize a safe place. So that will stop you from hypervigilance. It'll actually titrate the experience. So if you have a tendency to become inhibited or anxious in situations, have an image that you can go to that reminds you of a place in your life where you feel safe and relaxed. Bring that image to mind. Carry it in your mind, or it could be someone with whom you feel safe. Carry them around. Titrating is a really powerful tool. It's a legacy of what's known as the transitional object. When children are very young and they move from sleeping with their parents into sleeping in their own rooms, their parents give them a security blanket. And that's a transitional object. And they walk around with this, this transitional object, although they don't know that's what it is. They don't say, Mommy, where's my transitional object? They walk around with this blanket because it becomes a representation of the parents. It makes them feel connected. So if you have an image or a person you can carry around in your mind, it will help you relax into the experience. And Finally, if you can do these exercises and get to the experience of disclosing to other people the difficulty you have in social situations, that's the most positive thing of all you can do. There was a study where they worked with people who are frightened of speaking in public, and they gave them all these different tools, and the one tool that was the most effective beyond titrating, beyond working with the breath, beyond all the other, you know, bringing a friend and talking to the friend, the one thing that worked most of all was when people went up and in front of people, when, you know, when they were nervous speaking in public, they would simply say, hey, this fucking makes me fucking nervous. Maybe without the F-bombs, but they'd say, hey, this is something that makes me nervous. When you stop concealing the fear and acknowledging it, it creates the most authentic connection and it alleviates the fear activation. It's the most powerful thing if we can give ourselves permission to take that risk and say, hey, I'm new here, I really, really am uncomfortable introducing myself, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. My name is Josh. How are you? When we do that, we strike such a blow for alleviating the uh, causes and conditions of uh, social anxiety. So once again, working with the breath, relaxing the body, um, environmental cues so that we're not hypervigilant, taking incremental steps, uh, having a visual image of somebody or place we feel safe, carrying it in mind, acknowledging the fear. These are the tools that actually help alleviate social anxiety and inhibition in the long term. I hope there was something of value. I thank you for listening, and now we have time for a couple 